And again, just thank you to John. It, it is, even though it was short notice, it is always a tremendous privilege to be able to come and preach at another church. I don't give my pulpit away lightly. I know John doesn't either. Um, and I think that's important not to. So thank you for the privilege to Bill. We had a lady who got to 99 and missed her 100th by about three weeks. So it's really nice to see someone who's made it. And what a wonderful privilege that God has given you so many years. I have to tell you that all the best people are born in November, without question. I can say that. My wife was born in November. Won't you join with me as we pray? We do not want to pretend that somehow we are deserving of all that we have received from you. It is by your grace and grace alone that we are what we are and we have what we have. And it is your grace that has revealed the Lord Jesus Christ to us and enabled us to come into a relationship with him. And what a wonderful situation that is to know the Lord Jesus Christ, to have a relationship with him. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you watch over us, you care for us, and you are interested in our well-being at every point. You, above all, desire to see our, your purposes worked out in our lives so that your name is magnified. As we, this morning, begin to wrestle with your word, we ask for insight, for without the help of the Holy Spirit we labor in vain. So speak to us, we pray. Undertake for the weaknesses of the preacher and allow the Holy Spirit to take your word and burn it deep upon our hearts this morning. For Jesus' sake. Amen. I'm going to move this a bit to the side if that's okay, John. I was out cycling and had stopped mid-cycle to have a cup of coffee. It was early in the morning and I was cycling with a man that we would go halfway and then we would sit down and have a cup of coffee and then we would complete our ride. And while I was sitting down enjoying coffee, the mobile phone rang. And I answered the phone and on the other side of the phone was a man who was in tears. I could hear his voice and I could hear the shaking of his voice as he began to speak with me. And he said to me, Ian, uh, uh, my, my daughter is lying in her bed and she's not moving. We've, got, uh, we've dialed triple zero, the paramedics are here, and they're working on her. And he said, I don't know what happened. I woke up this morning, I went out for a run, I came back, I popped in to have a look and see how she was, and she was still, there was no movement and she wasn't breathing. And so I got into the paramedics and they came and, and, and Ian, please, just, just pray. She's not moving. And I could hear the emotion and the tears in his eyes. And I said to him, I will pray. And then put the phone down. I turned to the man I was with and I said, I need to go. 
we need to, uh, said we need to get on the way. There's someone in, in distress. And while I was on the way, the phone went again. And I stopped and he said, Ian, my daughter is dead. 17 years old. How do you handle that? How do you handle a parent like that? Her 18th birthday was the next day. How do you deal with those circumstances if they come into your life? And God forbid that any of you should ever experience that. I went to the home. There were, the tears were flowing. There was tremendous grief. And yet, as a result of those circumstances, their son came to know Jesus. And so that in the midst of these awful, bleak circumstances, God was actually working out His purposes. And even though there was the grief that accompanied all of that, at the end of the day, there was a whole lot of good that God through in those circumstances. And even though there were tears and grief, what enables us to sometimes continue through those circumstances is to know that there is a God and He is ultimately working for our good. And our security in that God, our eternal security, our salvation security, if we know Jesus, is absolutely secure so that whatever happens in those circumstances, we know that we are safe in the hands of God. This mother believes her daughter was saved and therefore is with the Lord. So even though there's tragedy in those circumstances, and there is tragedy, there's a sense of also security in knowing that she believes her daughter is now with the Lord. Two weeks ago, the world woke up to the parish shootings and in this insecure world in which we live where in Martin Place a year ago there were shootings and people died, where our whole world is insecure, where terrorism may strike at any point where you may come home and, and receive a phone call that a loved one has lost their life because they've been killed in a car accident or whatever. God forbid that any of those things should happen, but the reality is we live in a very, very insecure world. And in the midst of this insecurity with uh, which we are faced daily, how can we know that we know that at least we are secure, that at least whatever else happens in this world... We are secure because what really matters at the end of the day is not whether or not we perish, though that is obviously something significant. What really matters is what happens the moment after we perish. Where are we then going to end up? And for all the tragedy that we've experienced in this world and people in Paris have experienced, what's really even more tragic about those circumstances as I think about it is that some of those perpetrators and some of those people who were shot, the victims, and I don't know who, who uh, the victims were, but for all of those victims who did not know the Lord, where are they now? 
And for those misinformed terrorists who ran in there shouting, Allah Akbar, God is great. Can you imagine the shock they experienced the moment they died and suddenly realized that everything they'd ever believed in was a delusion? And now you transport it into eternity. Now there's no turning back. Now there's no coming back and saying, Lord, give me a second chance because now I realize there is a God. Now I know that there is an eternity. Now I know there is an answerability to this God who has created me and created the universe and to whom I will stand and give an account one day. It's too late then to draw back. And so the issue that we need to really wrestle with this morning is, am I sure that I'm sure that I'm sure that I'm saved? Because living in a frail world, living in a world in which circumstances can change so quickly, none of us can say with any degree of certainty that we will still be here tomorrow. I'm sure all of you probably will be here tomorrow, but you just don't know. And it's into this... uh, insecure world in which we live that Paul is able to write these wonderfully comforting words that speak about our eternal security being guaranteed because of what Jesus Christ has done and therefore once that issue is settled we can know with absolute certainty because we are in the hands of God that whatever else is going on in our life and whatever happens in our lives God is at work behind the scenes to produce some kind of good in the most tragic and desperate spread of circumstances. Firstly, I want you to notice the certainty of eternal security. Verse 28a, and we know. I want to pause there because that little word know is a very important word in that particular verse. And we know. Now, if Paul is talking about our eternal security and he's talking about the, the fact that we can know that that is guaranteed. How does he know that? What gives him the ability to talk about this knowledge? And the little word that is used in the Greek talks about a certain knowledge, a definite knowledge. I know that I know that I know. There is no sense of insecurity in Paul expressing what he knows. What does he know? What is this knowledge? Where has he gained it? How is it that he can proclaim with such certainty that he knows that whatever else happens to us, our eternal security is guaranteed? He knows knows because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. He knows because he has met him on the road to Damascus. He knows because Jesus Christ, when he dies on the cross, actually secures the salvation of all who come to him through repentance and confession of sin and put their faith in him. He knows that salvation security cannot be taken away. He knows that no one can rob us of our salvation security. He knows that no one can snatch us out of the hands of God. And he knows this because he is confident of the work that Christ has completed on the cross. He knows that Christ's work is finished. So that when Jesus dies on that cross in John 10, 28, and he looks up towards heaven and he says, it is finished. What does Jesus mean? What is finished? 
Jesus makes clear what is finished early in John 6, verses 37 through to verses 39, verse 40, where Jesus says, I have not come down to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that He has given me but raise them up on that last day. So Jesus is stating as clear as possible what he has come down to do. His mission is to save all those whom Paul will talk about who have been effectually called, all those whom God has given. We are told in Revelation that that is a multitude that no man can number, this mass of humanity who come by repentance and faith and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has died to secure their salvation. And He secures it on the cross. It is finished. Jesus' work, in other words, is effective for all who believe. When a person places their faith in Him, and they genuinely place their faith in Him, what can be said with absolute assurance is that no one can take that away from them. You don't go from being saved to not being saved dependent upon how you behave. Your salvation is not dependent upon whether or not you are making the grade. Your salvation is not dependent upon your works. It is not dependent upon whether or not you're getting it 100% right in your Christian walk. Your salvation is absolutely dependent on the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what gets you there. That's why when that salvation is given to you as a gift from the Lord Jesus Christ, it is by grace we have been saved through faith, and this not of ourselves, but the gift of God, so that no one can boast. When He gives that to you as a gift, He doesn't revoke the gift. He doesn't take it away. It's not as if you sit there like a young lover with a rose and pull off the petals and they say, She loves me, she loves me not. She loves me, she loves me not. God has in Christ secured your salvation 100% and you cannot but cannot lose it. And so you see Paul is able to say in Romans chapter 8 verses 35 to 39, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered sheep as to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. Nothing. Do you see our salvation security, our eternal security, is not dependent upon our performance but the performance of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, don't misunderstand me, please. That doesn't mean that I'm, when I'm saved, I can live any old way I want. As we will see, Paul qualifies who, who it is that uh, this is directed towards and what that means. There's always here, uh, when I'm truly saved, I will want to please God and live in a way that pleases Him. But I'm not always going to get it right. And when I get it wrong, it doesn't mean that God discards me and says, that's it, you're no longer saved. There's a story, it's a, a true story, of um, a monastery in Portugal. It's quite humorous, actually. Perched on a 3,000-foot cliff, accessible only through a terrifying ride up in a basket. You know these big baskets you get into? And what they do is the monks at the top of this, this uh, mountain haul up the basket with their hands, rope, and you come in and you can visit it. Well, one American tourist who visited the site got nervous halfway up the cliff when he noticed that the rope was old and frayed. Hoping to relieve his fear, he asked, How often do you change the rope? And the monk in charge replied, Whenever it breaks. (laughs) Sometimes I think we think our salvation is a bit like that. You know, kind of we, we're hanging on to God and we're hanging for all we're worth, but every now and then our grip loosens a bit and we begin to slip and, and, and maybe, maybe we, we, we're going to let go and God's going to drop us and we're going to lose our salvation. I'm so glad that my Savior has secured my salvation on the cross in spite of me. Because I don't always live up to the ideals. But thank goodness Christ did. Secondly, I want you to know the scope of eternal security. Verse 28b. The scope of eternal security. And we know, now again, I'm going to retranslate this. And we know that God is at work for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose in all things. The all things, unfortunately, in the NRV, in most translations, believe it or not, the RSV gets it right, the, in most translations, is in the wrong place. If you were to go back to uh, the Greek and the way the Greek emphasizes or the way where it puts the emphasis of this verse, you would discover that the issue is that God is at work in all things. It is God who is at work. It's not as if all things are working together for God, but it is rather the focus is firmly upon God who is at work in all things. And when it says that God is at work in all things, that is all things as pertaining to the believer's life. That means that God is at work in the good things, God is at work in the neutral things, God is at work in the bad things. But in every sphere of life, the scope at which God is at work is it in all things in your life. Now I want to explain what is meant by that. Because I think sometimes this verse gets misunderstood. When he says God is at work in all things, he is not saying that all things that happen to you are necessarily good. Sometimes there are evil things that happen to you. Those things are not good. God does not call evil good. Evil remains evil. 
And sometimes as Christians living in a broken and a fallen world, we are subject to, we are unfortunately going to be the recipients of bad things happening to us, of evil things happening. You may unfortunately one day go to your doctor and your doctor may say to you, I'm sorry you have cancer, the dreaded C word. And that cancer may well be terminal. Or you may suffer a stroke one day. Or you may suffer some kind of debilitating disease that robs you of your speech like Alzheimer's. Those things are the result of living in a, in a broken world that is, that is under the curse of God, under the curse of sin. And you and I are subject to that. And as believers, God does not guarantee we are not going to suffer from those things. So evil things are going to continue to happen in this world and you may, unfortunately, be part of something like that happening to you. That is not God uh, bringing those things to bear upon you in the sense that evil does not come from God. Evil comes from this fallen world in which we live. And God does not shield us by putting a, a kind of a, a barrier around us that prevents us from being subject to those things. But what the Apostle Paul is saying is that in the midst of those bad, evil, horrible things that happen, God is working for your ultimate good. God is behind the scenes in, in a sense and He is working to ensure that some kind of good comes out of that. Now I want you to understand again that what is meant by that. When we talk about God working for your good, that is not that God is going to reverse the circumstances. That is not that God is going to change the circumstances. That, that does not mean if you're diagnosed with cancer that God instantaneously, because He's working for your good, is going to bring healing in those circumstances. Or if you've got some financial disaster, that God is somehow going to reverse the financial disaster. It's not talking about that. You see, when Paul says God is at work for your good in all circumstances, what Paul is saying is that God is at work for your ultimate good. And that must and can only mean that God is working for your salvation good, for your character good, for uh, refining your faith, teaching you patience, teaching you hope, reinforcing that He is in the process of molding you and making you more and more like Jesus. You see, God's concern for you and me is not that we uh, are happy all of the time. God's concern for you and I is that we are holy. And God is more concerned with shaping your character, more concerned with making you, and Paul's going to go on in verses 29 and 30, and we don't have time for that this morning, I wish we did, but he's going to go on to say that that is the purpose for which God works, to conform you, to make you into the image of Christ, to fashion you, to remove the dross, to shape you, so that you represent truly the Lord Jesus Christ. So that in the midst of evil being directed towards you, God is in process of shaping you, of refining you, 
of reminding you of the hope that you have of eternity, that this is not all there is, that one day God is going to rectify this situation. One day God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth, a home of righteousness, where He will take all those who love Him, and there they will live once and for all, freed from all the encumbrances of this world, from all the things that make this world so unpleasant at times, will be gone in a moment as God creates a new heaven and a new earth, and we are being fashioned for that. And you see what God is in process of doing is making you fit for heaven. You and I at at, at some level are not fit for heaven because we continue to sin and we continue to do things that are, are, are contrary to what God has created in us. You are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5. The old has gone, the new has come. God has made you into something completely different to what you were. But we are slow, we are stiff-necked like the Israelites, and it takes us a while to learn what we are in Christ. And so what God does is He begins to fashion us, and when those bad circumstances come along, He refines our faith, He strengthens our faith, He matures our faith, He helps us to grow more and more like Christ. That's the good that God is ultimately aiming at in your and my life. So it's not a reversal of circumstances. It's not a change. God may change your circumstances. It's not that God can't change your circumstances. He can. It's not that God can't heal. He can. But we must remember or bear in mind when we're going through difficulties that God's ultimate purpose for you is your character refinement so that you look like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the good to which He works in these circumstances. Genesis 50 verse 20. Remember the story of Joseph and his brothers. Remember how they took Joseph and they chucked him into the pit. And they were initially going to kill him, but one of the brothers intervened and said, no, don't kill him. And so they eventually sold him into slavery. And then he went and he slaved under Potiphar. And you remember how he got thrown into prison? Wrongly accused. God did not cause him to go into prison. He still languished two years in prison, or it was longer. He was 18 when he was sold. He's 30 when he comes to power. But Joseph goes through all of that, falsely accused, languishing in prison, finally delivered. What God had, uh, what the brothers had intended for harm, God intended for good, and it was to save a nation, ultimately. Or Acts 2, verses 23 and 24. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ, who is on the cross. And the scripture says, evil men put him to death. They hung him on that cross. They crucified him. But look at the good that God worked through that evil circumstances. Because it was on that cross that your and my salvation was secured through his death. So what was intended as an evil act, as a murderous act... God was working for the good of all humanity. And the issue that you and I have or struggle with or wrestle with is we don't have omniscience. We don't have all knowledge. 
so that when the circumstances overwhelm us, all we see is the here and the now, and we can't see into the future. We don't have that foresight. God doesn't give us that kind of foresight. And so we don't know and we don't understand always what's going on in uh, our circumstances. I don't know if you know your history, but there was a, a story told of the Wellington, the British commander, way back in 1815. And he was at battle with Napoleon, if you remember, in those wars. And the country was waiting to receive a signal from Wellington to know whether or not he had won the battle against Napoleon. And there was a man on top of a cathedral waiting for a ship to send the signal to them to notify them as to what the outcome of the battle was. And as this man, this courier, waited on top of this cathedral for the ship to signal, it began to signal... And as it began to signal, a fog all came in at the same time. And so as he read the signal that came through, trying to get through the fog, this is the message that he got. Wellington defeated. And he began to relay this message to others who were and, uh, on, on other cathedrals. And as this message began to spread throughout the Britain, there was a depression that... that uh, set in. But then the fog lifted. And the signal came in again. And this time, he was able to read the whole signal. And the signal said, Wellington defeated Napoleon. That's a huge difference, isn't it? Massive. You see, you and I have fog. The fog of our circumstances. The fog of not knowing. The fog of being unaware of what God is accomplishing. The fog that, that sometimes confuses us. We don't have foresight. We don't have insight into the future. And as a result of that, we don't know what God's accomplishing through our circumstances at the time. Sometimes it's only through looking back that we can see the work that God has done. But God has 20-20 vision. God is already in the future. God is eternal. Nothing is hidden from His sight. And when He looks at you, my dear friend, He sees His child and His concern for you as His child is to make you into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the midst of those terrible circumstances you may face, He's working for your good, your ultimate good. Thirdly, I want you to notice who's the benefic beneficiaries of eternal security. Verse 28 see, I'm going to have to really rush now. I'm almost out of time. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, it's very interesting because when he says, for those who love him, when he talks about God working in circumstances, it is for believers. It is for Christians that God is working. Those who who love Him. What does He mean by those He love Him? What does it mean to love God? How do I know that I love God? How can I be sure that I love God? What does Jesus say about loving Him? Jesus says in John 14, and I want to get the, the references right, John 14 verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, If you love Me, you will what? you will obey my commands. So Jesus says, if you want to know how much you love me, 
assess it on how you are living in obedience to me. If you claim I love Jesus, but you continue to consistently, and hear my words carefully, consistently live in rebellion and disobedience to God, it's saying that you don't really love him. Those who love Jesus are those who seek to please Him by living lives that are in obedience to Him. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. That doesn't mean you're not going to get it wrong from time to time. But there will be a consistency in your behavior over a long period of time. That's how you know that you love Him. That's what Jesus says. Um, So He's saying that this is for those who love Him. Do you love Him? What does your obedience look like? Is your life lived out a true reflection of who Jesus is? When others look at you, what do they see? Who do they see? Do they see Christ in you? Do they see someone who is passionately committed to discipleship, passionately committed to loving Jesus, passionately committed to putting into practice all that He has revealed in His Word, passionately living out their faith, or do they see a Christian who is compromised, a Christian who lives fast and loose with God, who is quite happy to do the things of the world without even blinking or thinking twice about it. If you were to go before a judge this morning in a court of law, and they were to gather all your non-Christian friends, would the judge have enough evidence to convict you that you're a Christian? If you love him and are called. Now the call here is God's effectual call. I don't have time, unfortunately, to to speak about that uh, because... Uh, Paul deals with that in, in much greater detail in verses 29 and 30. This is not where Jesus says many are called but few are chosen. This is rather the effectual call of God. This is the call that God puts out and he draws. It is a call that causes people to come to him. It is effective in their life. It is a call that results in salvation. And the point that the Apostle Paul is making, don't get caught up in the language, is that when it comes to our salvation, you are not saved because you chose Jesus. You are saved because God chose you in Christ. And God drew you and God called you effectually to himself. Now that does not mean at some point in your life you did not confess Christ. I'm not saying that at all. I'm sure many of you, if not most of you, at some point in your life made a a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the reason you made that commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ is because prior to you making the commitment, God had made a commitment to save you. He called you effectually. And thus brought you to the point where you were able to confess Christ as Lord. And then, uh, fourthly, I'm sorry, I'm out of time. I know I'm rushing now. I want you to notice the purpose of eternal security. Verse 28d. Verse 28d. Called according to his... What is his purpose? Paul is going to elaborate exactly on what that purpose is. Paul is going to say, his purpose is to make you into the likeness of of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God's purpose is spiritual for you. It is refining your faith. 
It is making you fit, as I said earlier, for heaven. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, And we who with all unveiled faces reflect the glory of the Lord are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do you see what God is concerned about in your life? Is making sure that He is making you into Himself so that one day you will be like Jesus. God has saved you with a purpose. And that purpose is to make you like Jesus. So whatever else happens to you in this world, whatever else the circumstances you may be facing, and I suspect in a congregation this size, some of you are going through difficulties. I suspect there's some of you who have arrived this morning who in your heart have got grief. It might be financial. It might be over a son or a daughter who's away from the Lord. It may be a marital conflict that's going on. It may be a health issue that you're struggling with. I don't know. But through the midst of all of that, what you need to hear if you are a believer, number one is your salvation security is guaranteed. You can't lose it. Even if you've responded not the way you ought to have. And you need to realize that God behind the scenes is working for your ultimate good. And therefore, we hold on to that hope. We cling to that reality. And we don't allow the things that happen to us to become so overwhelming to the point at which we want to throw in the towel. But we reaffirm God is at work in all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Amen. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word that speaks so clearly to us about the reality of our eternal security and the fact that those of us who are saved this morning can know with absolute assurance that you are at work in our circumstances, no matter how bad they may be right now. For those who are struggling this morning, and you know who they are, perhaps who are hiding it from all others, who are battling in some area of their lives, I pray that you would reinforce this truth to them. Remind them that you, they belong to you, that you will not let them go, that you will not discard them in the midst of their circumstances, that you have not abandoned them, that you are not disinterested in what they're experiencing, but that you, for their ultimate good, are working in their circumstances to achieve your purposes, to magnify your name. For Jesus' sake. Amen.